0: Hey, Anna. Hey, Jackie. Hey, listener. How did we get here?
1: How did we get here? So, when a mommy loves a daddy... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Hey, Anna, how did we get here on our subject today? Thank you for asking. So, first, what is our subject today? It is kind of
0: about how... uh, people interact with nature and like humans and nature instead of humans versus nature i was trying to find something that wouldn't sound like silent spring like humans destroying nature and like you know a bunch of negative sad stuff about you know the people humans destroying um you know natural spaces but i found this book it's called braiding sweetgrass it's by robin kummer it's like yeah it's pretty cool she's um an indigenous ecologist, so she has ties to the Patawami tribe, and she has her PhD in ecology. Very cool. Right? Uh, yeah, and she's a little bit of a poet, so the book is kind of, like, um, it reads very chill and, like, conversational and, like, beautiful. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so what is your take on, like, people and plants or people and nature?
1: Well... I'm a big fan, so I actually find myself surrounded by people who are really interested and invested in nature. Um, I think that people generally have this idea of nature as being something other than where we live, though, which I find interesting. Like, we don't think of the plants in the parking lot as part of nature. Yeah, but then if we see the same plants out in like an uninhabited area, we're like, oh.
0: Yeah, a lot of people think that nature is this pristine, untouched resource that um, is kind of like virgin land or never has been farmland. And it like it's magical and it's self-sustaining. And as soon as people get there or live there, it like, gets destroyed, which um, is not the case at all, in fact. So um, Dr. Kim-er, it's like kim er is her last name. So I'm just kind of going through her name, but I'll, I'll try to be mindful when I say it. She had a class, and um, this, this is how she starts the book. And she asked her students, like, "How do you feel with people and nature?" And the students were like, "People destroy nature." They, were, they cited a lot of valid things, like we we pollute streams, right. we dump you know oil in the ocean, like you know BP oil spill, stuff like that. Like natural disasters that happen because of humans. Fracking causes earthquakes. So they're saying all this stuff about how humans tend to destroy nature, deforestation, wildfires that get out of hand. Mm. And then she was shocked because, you know, she grew up on a lot of indigenous and traditional knowledge from her parents through the Potawatomi tribe. And she was saying, like, you know, people are actually really good
1: at growing things. Yeah, that's what I was going to – that's kind of where my mind first went, but that's also because I've been uh, – very interested in in growing plants, and for, like, as long as, you know, my adult life, my entire adult life, I've kept, like, house plants, but then I've also started growing uh, my own food on my patio as much as possible, and then I started gardening um, for an artist that I work for as well, and so, like, yeah, that's kind of, like, like, where my mind went. That's my connection to nature often, you know, my, my closest connection to nature, and, like, hiking and just growing plants
0: yeah like when I go disc golfing I'm all, like I'm always trying to kind of tug on some branches to let the like broken ones or the dead ones fall so during a storm they won't break the whole branch oh and I'll rip off like um, these little cattail or cat claw um, vines that are invasive I'll like help because they suffocate the trees so I'll go and like while I'm picking up my disc I'll like kind of rip some off and like I'm constantly, yeah, doing tiny maintenance things, or, like, during a trail, if a trail's muddy, I'll find some leaves and put it on the trail. Because, you know, if you take mud on your shoes, it takes away from the trail, and you'll have erosion faster. Oh,
1: so my So you can goodness. do, like,
0: yeah, like, I'm always doing these tiny things, and anyone can do
1: these I've things. I've never even thought of those things.
0: Yeah, like, oh, or, um, well, you're not supposed to use trails when they're muddy, but some parts, you know, are kind of dip, and so you don't know they're muddy until you kind of walk on them,
1: Yeah.
0: because it could be dry on some parts. But, like, yeah, I try not to... You know, take anything away. I try to add stuff or like do little tiny maintenance things because like, plants actually love it when you take dead stuff away, like the dead leaves. Um, this actually brings me to one of her points. Like Khmer was talking about sweetgrass. The book is called Braiding Sweetgrass, yeah. and um, so sweetgrass is a really sacred plant to a lot of Native Americans. So in their origin story, when um how the earth became to be sky woman fell into the water and then on a turtle's back they created the earth they put mud on the turtle's back and Mm -hmm. um sweet grass is the sky woman's hair oh yeah so it's like it smells really good it's really long and you can braid it into baskets wow yeah and so the Potawatomi people and other people she was living i think in upstate new york at the time and her grad student was trying to solve a problem because the um, native people and um, along with Khmer were kind of interested why sweetgrass was disappearing um, in their area because it was and it was getting harder to find and so they did a little experiment and so they did a control where the sweetgrass was not touched by any human being and there was two theories on like how to collect sweetgrass so both the people did um, they did some kind of offering of tobacco to the ground because you are not trying to steal things like the sweet grass is a gift. So you're trying to show,
1: like, your appreciation. Mm. So they do that. And then, um, sorry. I love that idea. No, it, that idea of, like, a, a gift to the ground. Because right. life is in cycles and things like that. And whatever you take, like, it gets returned in the end. You know, not the end, but, like, eventually everything gets returned. Right. And I just love that idea, especially when I think about, like, soil. Because soil is alive, you know, when you plant the, if soil oh, wasn't yeah. alive, you know, like there's, anyway, if soil wasn't alive, it'd be sand, you know? So, um, just this idea of like,
0: Oh that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. If soil wasn't alive, it would be these tiny seashells that turn into sand. Yeah. Cause yeah. sand is rocks yeah. or silicone or whatever, but yeah. And so they're offering some to the ground, um, tobacco or something else. And then they'll either pull up the sweet grass by its roots. So they mm-hmm. take some of the roots with it, when they pull it up to get basket-making material, or they kind of cl- pinch it and clip it, yeah. so they, the roots are on the ground. So there was kind of like, um, not fighting, but like a disagreement about like, what was best for sweet grass? Like, yeah. cause you want to honor this plant. And so- um, Can I
1: guess? Yeah. My guess is the clipping is better.
0: That's what I was thinking. So, okay. but um, her grad student does the research and um, she couldn't make an offering of the earth with, tobacco. So she felt kind of bad about that. She wanted to, um, you know, respect traditional knowledge, but she also wanted to know what happened. So she could kind of had to take away that part of the variable. But other than that, yeah, she would copy these in several sites. And so she found after doing this, I think for two years, um, that some of her control was dying off.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Yeah. And she was like, like worried about it, but she finished the study fine. And it turns out that um, it was dying off because it would get choked by, like, the dead sweetgrass under it, like, what? over it. Yeah, so it turns out both ways of picking it or plucking it or, like, kind of trimming it to get it actually helps stimulate growth for sweetgrass. Wow. you right. And um, the ones, the control that wasn't touched by humans died. That, and that is fascinating. That's why sweet grass is disappearing on these areas. Cause because people
1: aren't doing anything with it.
0: Yeah, the nati- the um, population that lives there does not collect it. Wow. Right? And I do this all the time with plants, too, though. I'll take the dead ones because it's kind of like brushing your hair. Yeah. Right? Like, since the sweet grass is um, Sky Woman's hair, you know, you you, you do need, need to brush, to brush it. it. You need to yeah. get all the
1: dead hair out. Like, yeah. not dead hair, but, like,
0: The yeah. loose hair. Yeah. The, loose hair yeah. yeah. the dead leaves. Yeah. You do need to do maintenance on these plants and so they love they loved being near people like there was a reciprocal relationship you kept it alive and they would give you like basket making material that is so fascinating right so plants actually love being around people or some plants at least a lot of plants you know way more than you would think that's actually why we have so many poisonous plants like you know I was showing you this picture of um silver nightshade Uh uh-huh And it was on the disc golf course I was at. Yeah, it was was on the
1: trail that we were walking on.
0: Yeah, I was like, what a cool plant. And it kind of has these, like, orange berries that kind of look like tiny little, like, um, yellow. I think they're more yellow. like Mm -hmm. yellow tomatoes that were maybe the size of, like, my thumbnail. And um, I was like, oh, these kind of look like you could put them on pizza. Kind of like, you know, those, like, um, those bell peppers, those um, sweet bell peppers you put on pizza. Oh, okay, yeah. And so I was like, oh, maybe they're animals. So I looked it up on a, like those plant apps. It was silver nightshade. I was like, oh my god.
1: Um, Deadly pizza.
0: Right. And so I'm like, man, these things are all around us. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was called "This Podcast Will Kill You." It was an epidemiology podcast. It's really great. I highly recommend. Um, and then they had someone on another podcast on the episode, and it was um, in defensive plants, and he was explaining why there's so many poisonous plants around people is because a lot of poisonous plants love disturbed soil. And you know who disturbs soil? Humans. Oh, so (laughs) destructive. Yeah. But it's, it's really funny that, like, poisonous plants... So like spice, like a habanero pepper, the spice was supposed to be poisonous, but then like we're like, yum, yum. (laughs) Yeah, it's delicious. (laughs) Or like mint is so magical, but it was like the plant trying to poison you and it kind of failed in a cute way. (laughs) It's so cute
1: because I love mint. Mint's like my favorite. I love mint. Yeah, me too. And so
0: it's like when, you know, kittens are like uh, being aggressive and they're like, trying to hurt you and you're like you're so cute like <laughs> or like when dogs and squeaky toys apparently dogs like squeaky toys because um the squeak reminds them of like a dying prey yeah and but it's like cute to us we're like oh like he's with your he little loves little his, squeaker. yeah his little squeaky toy so like mm-hmm. this aggression um kind of comes with like being alive I guess like you know plants and humans do affect each other so yeah. I thought that was really beautiful. She gives a lot of examples like this in her book.
1: That's really cool.
0: Yeah, do you want to hear another one? Yeah, give me an example. Okay, so she brought a class to, like, a field trip in the woods. They were camping, and they stopped by this, like, I guess this marsh. One of Some of the kids, like, they were all city kids, so they are like, what if we need something at the store? And she was like, this is the store, you know? <laughs> like, the marsh gives you a lot of what you need, especially cattails, so... And the Potawatomi language, um, a lot of cattails are um, called, uh, in English, it would be, translate to like what you wrap your baby in. And then, oh. yeah, because um, if you break apart the cattails, you get that fluff. Yeah. And that fluff is really comfy and absorbent. So you could like, you know, uh, wrap your baby in it. And it would kind of like, you know, absorb any, like if I had to pee or something, but also create bedding. Any so it was-
1: Baby moisture.
0: Baby moisture. <laughs> so it was. it's great to have for, like, kids, you know, because it's easily – it's disposable, it's compostable, and you can always get more.
1: That's pretty cool. Right? That, I feel like that would be an interesting, like, um, business idea for, like, making diapers. <laughs> Environmentally friendly diaper.
0: Oh, kidding. yeah. I mean, you can make them out of, like, cotton, too. But um, and w- what is interesting about cactails, in a similar language um, – it's what it wraps ourselves in or like what the plant wraps you in. So it's like referencing that you are its baby, like it's taking care of you. Aww. Yeah. So it's like what we wrap our baby in, like that's what a cattail is. Uh-huh. And I just, and then it's like what we wrap you in, like we, we take care of you. Plants take care of you.
1: Isn't oh, that's that really awesome? cool. I love that. Yeah. I
0: know. I loved it too. When I heard it, I was like, this is awesome. And so um, they also, you can eat the reeds. And so she was like, we're at the store. People were like, we don't need a Walmart here. You can get everything from the marsh. So they were able to, they're cutting their hands up too. And so the cattail, like the stalk, secretes like um, basically like a salve you can use. And then you can eat it. It kind of makes like some kind of like enough calories to eat and sustain off of. So it has like a lot of stuff. And then they use the the longer stalks to make um, their like little... Um, like, tent out of.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Right? Yeah. So you had a lot of things and raw materials out of this one plant.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of uses for just one plant. That
0: right? That's not going to last oh, forever gosh. in a good way. You know, it's going to compost, and it's going to give you more. Yeah. So I love that. I was like, man, why don't we use that? Like,
1: I love the cyclical nature of that, too.
0: Yeah. And so you right take done. care of it, it will take care of you. So mm. it was great obviously not all plants are like this. There are plenty of plants that need help. Um, So another example was in the Mohawk tribe, they use uh, black ash to make baskets. And so she goes and she learns how to make baskets out of these black ash, you know? And um, it was a hard process because you have to very carefully use, pick a tree first of all. And so their teacher would pick trees that were around 30 years of age and so and they'd use like almost every part of the tree so you had to be really careful when you were like cutting it and stripping it to get like enough pieces to like start weaving it okay yeah and it was really cool like her describing the process but um what was interesting was that these trees are um disappearing
1: why are they disappearing
0: um a lot of it can be like climate but also like the t- smaller trees don't make it and you kind of wonder about this but it turns out that um there was a reason why they would use trees that were 30 years old it was because it would leave room for younger trees to grow through the story oh yeah so they found that like because the black ash was not growing in like colonized areas of America or like the America we know now mm-hmm. but the people who were still like using them for basket making they had a lot healthier trees. Yeah. So it's like that braiding sweetgrass thing. When you leave nature alone, it tends to like get out of balance because it needed people. It, it evolved with people to a certain extent. Yeah. Or adapted with people.
1: That's, so cool. yeah, that's a really good point of like the humans are nature too.
0: Yeah. And like a lot of anthropology, like one of my textbooks, they were saying, like, the Amazon, when you think that you see something that's, quote-unquote, pristine, um, it turns out that people are there, and they're actually making the, de- the forest denser and, like, taking care of it way better than if you left it alone.
1: Yeah, the Amazon is so fascinating to me, especially, like, in Peru, and just, like, how dense it is and how people just live in the Amazon, and they get everything that they need, and, like, they... Uh, yeah, just, okay... I'm, I'm reading this book, um, DNA and the Source of Knowledge by Jeremy, is it by Jeremy? Jeremy, did you write this? (laughs) Um, let me look up the name, but he just talks about his experience in Peru in the 80s and the, the rainforest there and how the people that he was studying, because he's an anthropologist, Jeremy did write it, it's Jeremy Narber. Cosmic Serpent, DNA, and Origins of Knowledge. Um, and I mean, the book's not about this, but it has a lot to do with it, you know, like the, um, the 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 rainforest and, you know, the Amazon and how the people, like, he described the village that he was staying in and the people there, and whenever anything would happen, they'd be like, oh, we, we need a new hammer, and they would just stop and they would just make a new hammer or like whatever tool they were using, you know, like hatchet. They just, they just make a new one right when they see like, oh, we need that. And then they just do it and then they continue on. Um, But they like went to a neighboring village because there was another like ayahuasquero that was, you know, claiming some sort of something. And so he went with the ayahuasquero that he was with studying to like this other village and they had to walk because it was too dense to like use any sort of motorized transportation. Um, And it wasn't that long. It was like a day's walk. You know, so it was like pretty close, you know, pretty close by. Um, I just found that fascinating. Like the forest is so dense that you can't, you can't use a motorized vehicle. You have to walk even now, like with technology and all that stuff. It's like where, um, where certain uh, technological advances like don't really help us and like how we need to adapt with our environments and things like that.
0: Yeah. I like that you, like walking was is definitely the best source of transportation because we evolved to walk. Um, I mentioned this before in the show, but like and then we evolved with plants so like it just makes sense. We don't have to destroy things, uh, like build roads necessarily to get places you know yeah like we don't always need infrastructure to live, but we act like it's the you know nece- like a necessity
1: yeah it's this idea of tools like you have to use the right tool for what you're doing you know if you use a hammer that's too big you're gonna you're increasing the chances that you're gonna hammer your hand you know not just the nail that you're trying to hammer so it's just um yeah putting things in the right right proportions and things like that it's just like anyway I I I'm like getting transported to another place in my mind because I'm thinking about that book again uh and like the ayahuasca ghettos and like the this like so um in Peru like the the sh- you know the shamans they're like they have this uh we have this or at least in the west I feel like we have this idea of them being like you know obviously they're spiritual and Uh, just like their knowledge and stuff like that but there's a lot of interesting facts that I learned from Jeremy Narber's book about like the way that they connect to nature and they do that through the use of hallucinogenics um, which I mean some people discredit because it's an altered state of being but it's just really interesting when you see people having very similar experiences with having no like connections in their background you know like just like the way that we understand nature and all this stuff um, so the in Peru they have this immense knowledge of their of their plants and Jeremy Narber asked them like how do you how do you know this stuff right they use plants as medicine and like how do you know that these plants are medicine and these plants are poisonous and all this stuff and then the the western philosophy on that is like oh it's because you know, trial and experimentation, and then over the course of generations, you find uh, this wealth of knowledge of, like, these plants are safe to eat, and these ones are not, but that's actually not how they claim to know any of their plants. They knew because um, they said that the plants told them.
0: Oh, yeah. Kimura says that a lot. Like, plants will tell you what they need, and, like, they'll tell you who they are, because she grew up around strawberry fields, and she knew exactly how they grew and like what they look like and like what they kind of personified as Mm -hmm. so that's exactly right like when you know something and then humans know most information through stories like if you're ever trying to convince someone or something or like sell something it's best to tell a story or teach someone something um I said that (laughs) already Mm -hmm. but um yeah we learn through stories so if you can understand something through a uh, relationship it's you're gonna remember it way past than just memorizing facts yeah so that makes sense yeah Kimmer also like talks about this in her book
1: yeah it's it's really fascinating this uh, you know, it gets into some more esoteric and like stuff that I mean I'm really interested in but I don't know if that's exactly what this podcast is about so we yeah. can do an episode on it
0: well, like one thing that this camera does a really well, a job at explaining is that there's multiple ways of knowing things because she's a scientist, but she's also drawing upon her own lifetime of knowledge of interacting with plants and her community and like where she grew up and like um, the Potawammy, um version of knowledge, too. So like all can be valid. Yeah, you know I mean, and they have it's their strengths all just like
1: different ways of experiencing what we are experiencing which is being alive on this planet
0: <laughs> yeah and like um that's one thing about science that doesn't always like there's one scientific way of knowing but then you can also like people who don't have time to do a study about something they're like i just know this is like right through my experience and trial and error and that's just like part of living yeah so no it can be equally valid to like hear people and sometimes more useful because if you were, like, I was thinking about this today, because I know we were doing an episode about plants, and so I was thinking about, like, my basil plant, and I really like it, and, like, I wish, like, I could describe, like, you know, using, telling someone who doesn't like plants, like, how much it meant to me, and, like, I was, like, well, you know, it gives me, it makes me feel rich, like, I I don't know (laughs) how to describe the feeling, but, like, I think I got it for, like, three dollars, and, like, I've used, I've trimmed it multiple times, and I put on pizza, and, like, it's grown back and it's grown bigger and I've had like smaller like offsprings from it that I planted in different pots. And so like, it's created, sorry, <laughs> it's created more of itself. So it's grew, but I was like, maybe I saved like $12 or something. I'm like, it's not like exactly like a money maker. But... It's not
1: about the money either though. Cause I know what you're talking about and like uh, one of my roommates, I talked about him quite a bit on the show now, but um, they have a cat. And I was, like, really clear from the beginning. I was, like, I've had this these plants longer than that cat has been alive, so this is going to be a problem if that cat destroys my plants. And that was, like, something that we were, like, set a bunch of house rules about because I am a plant person and I've had, you know, I've been taking care of this living thing for five years. I want to keep doing it, and I want it to keep living.
0: Yeah, and... Yeah exactly that like I realized that um it's like my relationship with the plant has given me so much happiness and like it's been a gift you know mm-hmm. like w- and like more ways that you can't really say that in terms of Can money I quantify
1: be- it yeah yeah because it misses
0: out on the point like the point that it it watched me grow I watched it grow and I feel like I know it like very well like I know when it needs water and like obviously because it get basil droops when they need water but like yeah. I know yeah exactly what it looks like when it grows and like when its petals fall off because like even when it's healthy it will lose some petals and like you know that's more knowledge than I could say about like if you just bought like some sprigs at the grocery store and used it for cooking you didn't get to see it live you know you don't have a relationship with it because it's like it's a gift Kimmer like talks a lot about how the you know the earth is a gift to us So, you know, when things are a gift, you have, like, a real relationship with it. It's not a transaction. It's something that you don't want to take for granted.
1: That's really beautiful.
0: Right? And so, like, it feels, it hits all the right places of, like, how to talk about these things in a wholesome way that, you know, doesn't talk about how we just, we do destroy things. But when I say we, it's mostly, like, industry, I think, that destroys things. Like, human beings don't.
1: Really, I've seen some people destroy some things.
0: Yeah, that's true. But like, at a, in a systematic way, we could not, you know. And so,
1: also, some of destruction is necessary.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, that brings me to a good point. How like a uh, slash and burn, or it's called swidden agriculture. When you set fire to the forest, mm-hmm. is actually really good for the fir- forest because it's controlled fires that will stop it from getting destroyed in a big fire. Like California, famously, does not do this. So. Yeah. Every couple of years they have these destructive fires that get too big and eat away everything because they burn too hard they turn burn too bright and they burn for too long. But if you were to just burn a little sections of it, it actually helps bring back carbon into the soil. And like a lot of people do agriculture this way and it's way better for the environment than you would originally think than using like American methods to farm. Hmm. So it's kind of bad rep. But, like, traditional knowledge, like, using the good burn or the good fire to, like, um, help restore balance. And, like, it does cause destruction, but it actually is good for long-term health. It's like a haircut, you know?
1: Yeah. So. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Those of us who are attached to our hair will know, like, how (laughs) how devastating it is when you get a bad haircut. Oh, my gosh. And then you leave the salon and the stylist is like okay, like, you know, they're happy with it. They did their job. And you're like, my identity. <laughs> Who am I? And you go to the car and you cry. But you know what? It's fine because your hair grows back. Yeah,
0: and, like, it's probably better to have a couple of weeks of a bad haircut than to never cut your hair at all. That's and then it gets caught bad. in something, and you're like, Oh you lose Oh, my it. gosh. And, yeah, that's why,
1: get, that's why you get cut. That's why you get cut. That's why you get haircut.
0: Yeah, it could be like that, like you know, we do have to go through processes of maintenance. I feel like one word I say constantly on these episodes is maintenance. Like, you know, you can't ignore your surroundings, like with your city, with your community, with like anything. There comes an aspect of maintenance that we all need to do and that we don't really focus on. I think the rise of like um, self-care has become prevalent. Like that's basically maintenance. Yeah. So when you're like, interacting consciously with the relationships you have in your life like your maintenance with nature is important your maintenance to yourself and your community are also important so like
1: and some of the things that like your maintenance of yourself can go hand in hand with nature too you know like if you need you need fit you need physical activity to maintain your physical health right and so like taking a walk walk in nature hiking things like that those you know two birds one stone you get physical fitness, and then you also get to, like, develop a deeper relationship with nature by, like, spending more time in it.
0: Exactly. One of the things that the pandemic has shown, I took a class on uh, parks and protected places last Mm -hmm. semester, and, um, yeah, uh, the use of parks has gone up astronomically because people realize, like, we do need nature, you know, and they found a lot of refuge there, and so it's, people are passing more and more, like, funding to create more parks and more resources for people, Oh, one thing that um, I forgot to mention, we we're talking about um, the ash trees and just, like, how people kind of belong with nature. Mm-hmm. Akimura makes this point, too, like, people and nature are not separate. We're together. Yeah. And um, one of the things you can see is, like, Yellowstone used to have Native Americans on it.
1: I was waiting for you to bring this up because <laughs> we talk about this, like, all the time. Uh,
0: we we do it's just like it's hard to ignore because both of us like to hike and like be in nature too so we're like we don't have to separate ourselves like um or imagine that nature is pristine and untouched because that's just not true and it has not been true throughout history yeah
1: yeah and and Yellowstone is an example of that how there have been people living in Yellowstone for
0: yeah until it became a park and then they kicked them out but then like you lose all that maintenance and protection because um in, like, South America, when they do protected zones, um, like, cartels will set up shop in these, quote-unquote, protected zones because people don't live there. It's supposed to be protected wildlife and land yeah. and nature zones. But if you don't have people living there and your government doesn't have the resources to protect them themselves, then they set up shop. They create, like, um, airstrips. They, um, oh. yeah, they raise cattle on these zones to, um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Okay. They use cattle to money launder. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the, I think one third of the cows, that like beef we eat in America, came from South America. It's probably from a cartel, like money laundering. Wow. Yeah. And um, so, it, but they found in these spaces where people were living in these protected areas, uh, people are great at protecting their land <laughs> from cartels because, you know, that's your livelihood. Yeah. And so when your your life depends on the land, then you will protect it. And I think we're saying that now, like we do need to get better at protecting things. And if like uh, the U.S. is kind of letting more people live on protected zones to, you know, take care of the land a little more. So we Mm -hmm. are getting more open about that. But
1: we still have a long way to go to like, you know, that was actually one of my goals one of my life goals is to be a landowner, and one of the things that I wanted to do was own, like, large amounts of land, specifically so that I could protect it.
0: Yeah, it, t- it does take a lot of work, because you have to reintroduce species, because mm-hmm. ever since we started putting fences and barbed wire up to cattle ranch in, like, America, yeah, it um it ruined the trees. Like What? Yeah, I think um, the... At least in, okay, in central Texas, we have a lot of juniper, Uh but there should be a lot more understory trees, but when juniper grows, it blocks out, it's really good at blocking out sunlight, so not too much can grow under it, but when the buffalo were here, they would trample the smaller juniper trees, and so other trees could grow.
1: Yeah, wow. So, do you ever think that we could get to, like, a society where we have, like, no... Defenses. like we could have other ways of like managing this stuff I feel like that would be a really interesting way to see technology develop so that we can solve some of these problems right those these are problems that need solving
0: <laughs> yeah and like once you restore the trees like you'll have more animals you'll have more deer and you'll have more water like um you know having a barren wasteland doesn't like protect your water in some cases people cite like um, in Salt Lake City, you know, when they cut down on the trees to the Mormons came over and mm-hmm. um, they founded Salt Lake City, their water table went up, but only temporarily.
1: Yeah, the water in Salt Lake is disappearing now. Yeah. And it's also, they have a lot of like grass, like sod mm. grass, and it's just like really, con- anyway. We could get into that in another episode.
0: but Yeah, but to answer your question, I don't know. I think it's not necessarily even technology. It's just, like, perspective that needs to be changed, too. Well, like, I
1: was thinking technology in terms of, like, cattle management. Like, we could use cowboys again, but, like, you know, to keep cattle in one area, maybe there's other ways that we could develop to, like, manage things like that so that we don't have to have fences all over the place so that we can...
0: Yeah. Like in Australia, they manage cattle, not using cowboys on horses, but like they use helicopters. They use ATVs. They use a lot of different stuff. Yeah, these farmers' drones.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: you. I'm sure you could use some kind of like drone or defensing um, too. You could probably, uh, like, uh, let's imagine we're in a sci-fi world or something fences that are temporary so they like maybe there's two posts and the fences are electricity that's flying through them
1: yeah that's kind of something along the lines of what I was imagining
0: yeah and then when the buffalo they do annual um migrations right so you just turn it off and then you put the cattle in a different enclosed area or maybe like a the
1: buffalo room
0: or maybe you just um <laughs> uh, but yeah or maybe you just hire cowboys seasonally or something so you don't always have to have so you don't always have to have the fences but yeah you could uh, we could probably imagine a different reality like where people humans are really good at imagining things so we could yeah. we could probably solve this problem right like no problem is unsolvable and on earth yeah it just depends on like effort and organization I think
1: I think that's where art can be so powerful especially like art that's connected to like <clears throat> nature and and things like that, um, because if you can imagine a different reality, it's, like, just so much easier to get there. It's, like, it gives us the blueprint, you know, when you imagine, um, and what I mean by that specifically, I can give you an example, like, I was making a ring, and I had this idea of what it would do, but once I drew it out, then I had, I had a plan, because I knew what it needed to look like, and then the steps were a lot easier to get, you know, then it was about the strategy of how do you get from, like, the sheet of metal to a ring
0: you know yeah no a lot of traditional knowledge that Kimmerer was talking about in her book too it was um like the stories that they tell each other do follow like warnings and like instructions on how to take care of the earth she uses the concept of um oh my god I forgot what it was
1: called Anna remember who you are <laughs> oh my
0: god oh okay she uses the concept of a windigo. What
1: like, is that?
0: Yeah, in folk tales, a wendigo is uh, someone who takes too much, and then they kind of turn into like a zombie. Okay. Yeah, it's like um, it's like a, kind of like a mythical creature, but human beings turn into this, and it's like a cannibalistic zombie that takes and takes and takes. That will n- that eats, but never will be fulfilled.
1: Studio Ghibli, Spirited Away. the fa- no Face. No oh, name, what, yeah. What's his
0: name? I think his name's No Face. Yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah. The, when he's like when he first comes into the bathhouse, he just Exactly. Like consumes and consumes and consumes.
0: He's a type of Wendigo cuz he just like Wendigos don't understand gifts and and when times get tough, they don't rely on like sharing or gifts or like um inner strength. They will they will take and take and take. And so Kimmerer says that, like, our society of consumption is,
1: like, the Wendigo. Wait. Currently, our society is, like, a Wendigo? Oh, yeah. Because we
0: kind of consume without giving anything back.
1: Yeah. And I would we- see that. Consum- like, society versus community. Like, where's the... What's the difference between those two?
0: Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Society is a community as a type of society. But if you're saying, like, um, cities versus communities, there is, I would say, a difference. So, yeah. like...
1: Because I wanted to build on, like, the friendship episode where we talked about um, gift-giving and friendship. And, like, friendship builds communities. Oh, yeah. So where, where are we... Where's the breakdown? You know, it's kind of what I'm wondering. Is like, if we have to have reciprocation in our friendships why don't we have that in our societies like in in our relationship with nature
0: we should and that's what she advocates for because you know much like braiding sweet grass when you take the sweet grass you leave a gift Mm because you don't take more than you need to because that's what a gift is it's not taking it's receiving and you're not taking more than you have to yeah and so yeah she talks about that and so our, our, like, economic system depends on kind of, like, taking and taking and taking, kind of like a Ponzi scheme, like, assuming crazy amounts of growth without any repercussions.
1: Yeah. You and know so what also is crazy amounts of growth? It's cancer. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. It's a cell that can't stop
0: multiplying. Exactly. Um, we need a way to, like, reciprocate and, like, contain ourselves and become sustainable. Wow. And to sustain things you can't sustain growth all the time you need to learn how to like in the time of when wendigos happen is during like scarcity but she also mentions in her book that there's no such thing as scarcity this is something that the windigo society creates because if you're constantly taking and taking and taking there are things that would run out but if you notice that um When you take something as a gift, you always leave something with the person. So you leave something with the plant. You don't take it until it's gone. Gifts don't consume everything.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, She has a great story. This is at the beginning of her book about uh, pecan trees. I love pecan trees. Do you know
1: anything about pecan trees? I know a lot about pecan trees. Oh, sweet. Do you want me to tell you something about pecan trees? Yeah, that would be awesome. They are native to uh, North America, specifically the latitude that we are actually currently in central Texas to like New Mexico area. That's where pecan trees are naturally from. And between the U S and Mexico, I think over 80% of the world's pecan tre- the world's pecans come from.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She actually talks about pecan trees in relation to her family because, so she's from the Potawatomi tribe, which is um, near the great lakes region. So like Illinois, Wisconsin, like that, those areas. Mm-hmm. But during um, the Trail of Tears, her tribe was moved to Oklahoma. So her great-grandfather lived in Oklahoma for several years. And so um, one day, he they she has a family story that um, would, she would tell about how her granf- grandfather was um, fishing and they didn't catch any fish, but then they saw how pecans were in the trees. So he <laughs> took off his pants and kind of, I guess, tied the ends so he was able to bring home, a a pants full of pecans. (laughs) So they had something to eat because pecans, you can store them in winter. That fat can save you from going hungry. And they're very high in calorie. Yeah, they're awesome. And then she was postulating that maybe this saved her from her great grandfather being taken away to the Carlisle school, the Carlisle Indian schools or the Indian schools that they would um, horribly take Native American children too to quote unquote civilize them to American society and take them away from their families. So she talks about that too in
1: her book. Kind but a um a traumatic thing to do to a child.
0: I know that that was such a horrible part of our history and like we really do need to like make amends and like make real amends too with this. But um, getting back to pecans. <laughs> um, yeah she does mention in other parts of her book so yeah if you have the time please read it like Oh yeah, we couldn't touch on everything in this book, Um, but so pecan trees are interesting because um, there's never such thing as like one pecan tree having pecans in a year. It's all or nothing. So all the trees will store up enough sugar. You know, that's actually true. Okay. continue. Yeah. And then, um, so it's kind of a collectivism because so the trees will share sugar with each other Mm -hmm. in order to store enough for the year that they'll have enough pecans. So they can like all have pecans, and what I mean they like all the trees can flower at the same time, which is really interesting. And she was saying it was a form of collectivism, which is awesome, right? This is amazing.
1: Okay, so mm, my my family comes from a community that grows a lot of pecans. Oh wow! Really? Yeah, like tons of pecans, like they send all their pecans to China. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, but um, my my grandmother started a pecan orchard. I don't know what you'd call it. I call it an orchard, but um, the she started one tree by tree, like you were talking about in the last episode, or so. Like when we were talking about like building a house room by room as you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, she grew her pecan pecan orchard one tree at a time so like each tree is a different age within the orchard but she's had I think the oldest one is now like 65 years old. Wow. She wasn't she ended up planting two acres of pecan trees and I didn't know this because it's always been split when I grew up there was always a road in between the two acres but that road was put there later. Um, My grandma had all that land and it was one piece of land and then they put a road right down the middle of it and so she had two pieces of land like ca- uh, next to each other divided by a street. Anyway it doesn't really have much to do with that part but um, yeah and this is something that I actually observed but I never really thought about that like um, one of my aunts that lives on the land now she mm, ha- that's her livelihood is the pecan trees and they're the, the nuts that she sells from them and some years they don't there's no nuts.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, like, that's how um, you can't have overconsumption, because she gave an example of um, the pecan trees having a bunch of nuts, and so the squirrels are, like, sweet, and they, you know, eat a bunch of nuts, have a bunch of squirrel babies, and then um, they have a huge population because of the nuts, but then they don't, the nuts don't come back, and so it controls the population, so you can't Outgrow grow your resource.
1: Yeah, and this is fascinating to me too, because like I, this is something that I've seen modeled a lot is like a lot of people will like work in the U.S. and then go down to Mexico and plant a bunch of pecan trees. And they make a lot of money by growing pecans, like hundreds of thousands, because pecans are a luxury. They require a lot of water. Um, and I think there's a lot of issues with the people who are growing pecan trees. Like when I went down um, and I went on this ranch tour, spent eight hours we went to every ranch in the valley and it was it was exhausting but um one of the things that I realized is that they haven't been issuing water rights in that area for at least 30 years now and I think that's problematic because that means the water wells that they are digging are illegal and it's lowering the water table and pecans require a lot of water and I was like this is not a sustainable like business venture for me because in my generation I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of those pecan trees not producing because there's not enough water to sustain them all. And like, they're, they're developing like, uh, better ways of, of watering, you know, irrigation systems that are like more effective, more efficient. Um, and it's just like the whole valley is like all pecan trees. I'll show you a picture later, but, um, so many pecan trees and, and then, yeah, anyway, no, that's very, right. very close to pecans. And
0: uh, don't pecan trees take several years to produce pecans I think
1: take about 10 years to actually produce like commercially viable pecans?
0: Yeah, no, that sounds right because it's so calorie dense that um, Kemmer was talking about how the tree it's like they, you know it's their product. it's their like it's their life that they're giving you. and so it can't be easily taken. you know you yeah. can't get something that awesome every year. And so um, there has to be a balance to our lives.
1: That's really interesting because, yeah, um, that was one of the things that I saw. I was like, with the way that they were using water, um, if I were to plant pecan trees, the water security, you know, is just like, I, I just don't know if there would be enough water to keep my trees alive long enough for them to produce. I don't know that that's like a good...
0: Yeah, like um, water will be something that we'll talk about more and more as a society because that's happening everywhere in the south, you know. Yeah. But I also think we're really dumb about water because you know we use water every day if you live in a city, and then but then our water sewage treatment treats it and then releases it into basically the ocean. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you told me about this. In Texas, they do that Yeah, like, we don't
0: really put it back or try to put it back in our water table. And I was like, we could, though. Like, technically, I mean, I don't, I think we'd have to rebuild some stuff. But
1: I don't understand why we don't do that. I don't, I don't either. I think because water was thought of to be, like, this plentiful resource, which it is. Like, our planet is mostly water. But you, like, drinking water, fresh water, you know? Yeah. Uncontaminated water. Yeah, water without forever chemicals in it. Oh, my sorry actually there's like uranium in the water near the Grand Canyon which is like a really big problem in like Navajo Nation
0: oh Um, is it because of like testing that they did out
1: there no it's because there's there's mines oh I think it was I'd have to look it up to remember that's
0: kind of crazy that we don't outsource our uranium like that's kind of funny because we tend to outsource a lot of stuff in America yeah oh well
1: I know. And for it to be so close to the Grand Canyon, there's like this beautiful spring of water. It's absolutely crystal clear, but you can't drink it. It's radioactive. Wow. Dang. Yeah. Like, that's horrible. Sad. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, there's a lot of things that are sad and I think bringing attention to them is like, gives us that's where our power is that's where like our our choices like we can start to do things like small things to like make make this world a little bit more like we want to live in you know like not uranium in our water like
0: yeah and that also tends to be big companies like uh like so much of ecology and conservation um blame people but like it's not individual people who are doing this stuff to the world it's they're big companies who don't assume any responsibility because the CEO is like, well, that wasn't me. But you're like, then who was it? Like it was a whole organization of people and it it goes off of this, like of not understanding your purpose on this earth, which is to like take care of the earth, you know? And so it kind of gets a runaway, I would say like no accountability in these organizations, but I don't think they're up to individual people to have this blame, you know? And so like, I I hate when people are like, well, people aren't recycling. Like, that's the problem. I was like, these companies are making things that aren't recyclable. Like, you
1: Yeah, it's designed and then it comes down to policy because, like, what are these companies allowed to do? Exactly. And, And this gets into neoliberalism, which was kind of like one of the sparking ideas of this podcast in the first place is, like, we wanted to talk about neoliberalism and, like, neoliberal policies and how they affect us
0: yeah, the deregulation of our policies and um, the deregulation of companies has allowed a lot of bad things to happen. And so it's like, it's not your fault that the plants are dying, like individual people, you know, it was probably your government that turned an eye and other companies that took advantage of it. And so like, I don't know, but if you take away one thing from this episode is that humans do a lot of good for plants, you know, it, as an individual, you can make a big difference by taking care of some plants, like, you know, taking off some of the dead leaves and watering it, and then, oh, for my... Shaking
1: the dead branches off the trees, like Anna does, which I'm going to start That's doing That's dangerous. Now. <laughs> you should be careful <laughs> about that. Um... <laughs> Let's go shake some trees.
0: Or um, uh, when I eat a banana, like I put the peel in some water and you let it soak and then it has oh, potassium yeah. in the water. Oh, for sure. I do that for my tomatoes all the time. Yeah, and it's great. So you can do a ton of tiny little things that, and the plants will enjoy it. You'll see a difference and you will create that relationship and like going out and like camping or hiking or just like hugging a tree. I mean, you don't have to hug it. You can I it. I love
1: hugging trees and you can call <laughs> me a tree hugger. I don't care. It's great. Like whenever I've been, uh, trees are there for me, you know, and like, hard moments of life and stuff like that all of the all of the human stuff that we deal with uh yeah just going on a hike and you know letting releasing those emotions and like feeling the sturdiness of a tree like just holding you up because they literally just stand there
0: yeah they they grow without ever needing anything and like you know so they provide so much and don't ask for anything so that's like we need more growth like that instead of things that take we need more reciprocity and gift giving and the gift giving doesn't have to be anything tangible it can just be like what you can give in that moment and sometimes it's acknowledging that we need nature as much of it as it needs us you know
1: and I feel like if you've listened this far and I think it's safe to assume that you're on our side (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> or like you leave something on, like you're swimming and it's in your ear. You have some waterproof uh earbuds and you're you're like uh, my phone is by my towel on outside of the pool and see so such shocked. a
1: specific scenario.
0: Well, you can do it any other way. Like, say you're cutting some wood in your,
1: in your I shop. I was literally about to say that. <laughs> that happens to me all the time when I'm cutting wood in the shop. And my I have headphones on. I'm, like, using the table saw. I can't get to my phone because yeah. I'm in the middle of a plank of wood.
0: Yeah, because we're holding you hostage in some way. <laughs> or if I'm driving, you want to be hands-off. You know, you want to be safe. So you, you can't always skip to the next episode. Sometimes you're held hostage by what you're listening to. So thanks for being held hostage with us. Yeah, thank you for letting us hold you hostage for a little bit. And if you listen voluntarily, thanks for that too. Yeah, thank you for listening with an open heart. Like, we really couldn't
1: ask for anything more. Um, I hope that this feels like a gift and that... (laughs) <laughs> i'm giving you the words
0: yeah my brain thank you yeah it's a gift that to us that y'all took the time out every day to listen to us so thank you thank you thank you
1: thank you hey thank you jackie hey thanks <laughs> <laughs> um did you have anything else that you wanted to add no just please
0: buy this book please take this book out of your local library rent it like tell Can other people the name and, and author Oh, yeah, it's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer.
1: I just love that name. Okay, I did have one more thing that I actually wanted to share, um, and it's something that the the name of the book reminded me of, and it's this poem that's very special and dear to my heart, and I just wanted to share it. Um, Oh, yeah, go for it. I'm going to recite some poetry for you guys right now.
0: Oh, man, Robin Kimmerer probably would love that. She's a poet, too, so this is a perfect way to end this. Wonderful.
1: It says... This poem is by Edna St. Vincent Millay, and it is called Afternoon on a Hill. I will be the gladdest thing under the sun. I will touch a hundred flowers and not pick one. I will look at cliffs and clouds with quiet eyes, watch the wind bow down the grass and the grass rise. And when lights begin to show up from the town, I will mark which must be mine and I will head down. (laughs) so thank you Edna St. Vincent Millay for that poem she is long deceased but it is a special one and thank you to you dear listener for making it through this episode I hope you had found some value in it and I hope you go hug a tree yes and um we'll see you on the next one yeah okay Bye. Bye. bye